Abortion history in American law and policy is a dark chapter in American history. Some have accepted a culture of abortion as the new popular norm, but Americans United for Life, partners like you, and many bold elected officials are not giving up. With Texas abortion law procedures on the Supreme Court's docket today and Dobbs on the horizon, it's time for individuals and states to prepare our responses to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. It takes boldness to remain pro-life, specifically in Washington, D.C. today. All three branches of government have some part in the fate of the unborn and the most vulnerable in our society. Today, we have a special guest who is on the front lines. We are joined by Senator James Lankford, who has represented the people of Oklahoma since 2011 and uses his position to advance a culture of life. He believes in an America where people of all ages are embraced and is working daily to defend the human right to life. I'm Anna Claire Noblet. This is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome back to Life, Liberty, and Law, brought to you by Americans United for Life. My name is Anna Claire, and today I'm joined by AUL's Government Affairs Council, Katie Glenn, as well as Senator James Linkford, who represents Oklahoma. We are so happy to have you both here, and let's jump right in. And let's jump right into a discussion about Hyde and pro-life legislation, as well as the Texas case that the Supreme Court is looking at today, and of course, Dobbs. <coughs> well, we will um, jump right in. So thank you so much, Senator Langford, for joining us. Um, we are in kind of a, a season on our podcast of talking about you know, a lot of exciting things in the pro-life world. Um, we've been analyzing discussions that are happening in all three branches of government. And I know you've been involved in a lot of those. Um, and so we'll start off just, I'm really curious. This is one of my favorite things to hear. Just your journey to Congress real quick. I, I know that it's usually a winding and unexpected journey. No one who usually plans on being a senator is the one who who ends up in office. So tell us a little bit about that first. No, I, I would tell you uh, that this was definitely not on our life radar. Uh, this was something that was unexpected for us by far. Uh, I was a youth pastor for 22 years uh, and served in local church ministry, served in denominational ministry. In the last 15 years uh, of my ministry time period, I served as the director of the largest youth camp in America, a camp called Falls Creek. And uh, that camp, we have 51,000 students a summer that come uh, to camp there. It's a very unique place, but it's a great place for ministry uh, to be able to just uh, encounter students in a moment when they're making life decisions. They get away from the craziness of their life and get away to a quieter place. If you can call a quieter place a camp with 5,000 teenagers <laughs> a week, if you can call that quieter. Uh, but it's a moment for people just to be able to get away and examine their own spiritual journey, their spiritual life. Uh, so I had the joy to be able to be there for 15 years. Uh, really not expecting to go to Congress. Uh, but in 2008 and 2009, uh, my wife and I both distinctly heard God's call to be able to run for Congress. And we spent about seven months just telling God how crazy that was. And he spent seven months saying, come follow me. And uh, so after seven months of struggling with that, we finally said, okay, I'm going to be an old man one day telling my grandchildren about the time I didn't follow God if I don't do this. 
we're going to submit to that and we're going to go through the process. So finished up that summer in camp in 2009, uh, resigned my position September the 1st of 2009. We spent the next year running for Congress. I was elected, obviously, and uh, have been serving uh, since that time period. I was elected in 2010 and uh, started serving 2011 and been serving ever since. Wow. Well, I know you have been one of the biggest leaders uh, in the Senate on the life issue, and we've been so glad to work, um, you know, with your staff on so many things. But one of the biggest things we've been facing right now is uh, the battle over the Hyde Amendment and the Weldon Amendment in the budget. Um, could you tell us more about why that's important to you to prioritize of all the things that you, um, you know, have come across your desk every day as a senator? Um, why is this so important? Yeah, so I, I would tell you there are a lot of things that I do work on, a lot of things that have to be done day to day, both economic issues, education issues, national defense issues. But along with all those important issues is also the most basic principle that we have in our, our system. If you're not alive, you can't have constitutional protections. Uh, and if we don't recognize the most obvious self-evident thing that, that we have as a culture and as individuals, and that's the humanity of each individual, nothing else matters from there. So this issue of life is very important because it is literally the foundational issue of every constitutional principle that we have. So yes, th this is a big issue. It's something we work on a lot. And I, I think that the Hyde Amendment and the Weldon Amendment, if people aren't familiar with that, uh, 1973 when Roe v. Wade was created by the Supreme Court, which mandated that every state had to allow uh, abortion in their state, that it was a protected quote unquote right uh, to be able to take the life of your child uh, in every single state. In 1976, just a few years after that, the Hyde Amendment was created by, by obviously a member of Congress named Hyde and uh, that, that amendment itself said, as a baseline, though we have wide disagreements on the issue of life and when life begins, as a baseline, we won't use federal dollars to be able to pay for the taking of life. Uh, and Republicans and Democrats could agree on that and have agreed on that ever since. Even Senator Joe Biden uh, was outspoken in protecting uh, this Hyde Amendment protection, saying we're not going to use federal dollars to take the life of a child. Uh, while our nation still continues to be able to have this ongoing conversation about that. The Weldon Amendment was added years later, and it said basically we protect institutions with conscience rights uh, and entities with conscience rights. So, for instance, a Catholic hospital uh, that says we don't perform abortions here because of our faith uh, can still get Medicare and Medicaid dollars, uh, even though they choose not to be able to do abortions based on their faith. We want to be able to protect those entities as well. So Hyde Weldon have been have been done every single year for decades now. And suddenly my Democratic colleagues in the House and the Senate are rising up and saying, we no longer want to honor those. We no longer want to acknowledge anything about the life issue. Uh, we want to use federal dollars to pay for abortions, and we don't want to protect the Weldon Amendment anymore. So when we had the budget conversation, I know that's a long answer, but it's a big question on it. Uh, when we did the uh, budget uh, reconciliation back and forth uh, now a couple of months ago, uh, I pushed and got a Weldon Amendment and a Hyde Amendment piece included and was able to get one Democrat, all 50 Republicans. It was just enough to be able to make sure that we could insert Hyde and Weldon protections back into the dialogue again and won that vote. There was a lot of conversation saying we wouldn't win that vote, but I, quite frankly, our staff worked very hard behind the scenes with other staff members on both sides of the aisle. I worked very hard to be able to chat with other members to be able to work through differences of opinion about this, to be able to get established and say, why would we not keep this baseline? Uh, so we continue to be able to have that. 
this year. We'll continue to be able to fight it next year as we face Supreme Court cases, and we'll see where things go the year after that. Well, we're sure glad that, you know, the Senate has taken this stand because it feels like, at least at this point, the House has sort of uh, lost its way on an issue that has been historically totally bipartisan. And we know 100 Democrats signed on to that original Hyde Amendment. Um, I think, you know, the Conscience Protection Act that you introduced uh, this Congress really fits well into that. Could you tell us a little bit about that piece of legislation and why we need it now? Uh, the conscience protection should not be a hard issue. Again, this should, should be basic respect uh, for individuals. Uh, I want the rights for individuals' conscience to be protected. Uh, again, that shouldn't be shocking. Everyone should go, sure, we should do that. But right now, the, the problem with that is you're, uh, any individual that has a conscience issue with abortion has to go to the federal government and to the Department of Health and Human Services. Currently, Javier Becerra leads the Department of Health and Human Services. He is the most pro-abortion leader that we've ever had in HHS, ever. And so he is outspoken, in fact, as when he was uh, the Attorney General in California, he was actively suing other states that were mm -hmm. trying to be able to reduce abortions in their state. So from California, he's attacking other states trying to get more abortions in America. So this conscience protection bill that I want to put in place says that an individual that has a conscience right. So let me give you, for instance, uh, a nurse that has notified her employer, I have a personal belief that abortion is taking the life of a human being. I don't want to participate in that. So that nurse, uh, then if her employer comes to her and says, I'm sorry, we're going to fire you unless you're a part of an abortion, uh, she needs to have some protections for that conscience right to still be able to be a nurse in that hospital system, but not be compelled to be able to perform, perform an abortion to get her conscience protected now, she has to go to Javier Becerra, who's not going to protect her on that. He's been outspoken to say he's not going to do it. So my bill would say she could go to court on her own as a private, what's called a private right of action, and to compel them to be able to protect that conscience right. So I, I think that's a pretty straightforward issue. Uh, it's not dependent then on government to go be your defender. You can actually go mm -hmm. to court and you can be your own defender. Yeah, that's that. it does seem very common sense and, and just... <laughs> aligning with the rights that we know to be true um, of us as Americans. But I, I really want to hear a little bit about your home state. I know you're proud of it. And um, I know that you wouldn't be here if you weren't passionate about representing those people, your friends and family back there. So really just give us a little insight to where the people of Oklahoma stand on the issue of life. So o Oklahoma is overwhelmingly pro-life. Now, again, I'm fully aware there are people in my state that are not pro-life, as there are in every state right. across the country. But overwhelmingly, it's a pro-life state. We, we, we take for granted this most basic thing that a child is a child is a child is a child, uh, and that a child has certain rights and responsibilities as they grow up. But we have a responsibility back to that child when they're most vulnerable to do what we can as a society, as a culture, and as parents mm -hmm. to be able to protect the, that life of that child. Uh, you know, as, as we look at it, we talked about the Hyde Amendment before. 60% of all Americans, even those that consider themselves pro-choice, are supportive of the Hyde Amendment. When we go into a state like mine in Oklahoma, uh, we look at the basic science. Uh, we can see in the sonogram that child sucking its thumb, that child playing with its toes in the womb. Uh, you can count the fingers and toes. You can see the heart beating. Uh, you can see that child reacting to pain even as early as 15 weeks, uh, reacting to pain if they're doing some kind of procedure. Uh, so that is a child. And what I come back to in the most basic conversation I have with people at Oklahoma is, uh, if we're looking at this child, even from conception, we see DNA that is different than the mom, 
different than the dad. We see a beating heart and a functioning nervous system and everything else that that just looks like a child. And for most people in Oklahoma that I talk to, they'll nod their head and say, I will state what's obvious. If I look at a sonogram <laughs> picture and I say, what's that? People don't answer tissue. That's what that is. They look at that sonogram picture and they say, that's a baby because it's self-evident and obvious. Uh, so we have that ongoing dialogue as a state. What are we going to do to be able to protect the life of every single child? Mm -hmm. Just like we would for a kindergartner on the playground, uh, just like we would for an infant in a car seat, we do for a child in the womb as well to recognize what's self-evident and obvious. Yeah, the only difference. I really like that. Right I really like that comparison. Right I mean, and it's simple. Older, you know, if we, if we kind of put it the in terms of a child, between them now and them in the womb, was time. There's really no difference. All the building blocks were there. All the development was there. And this whole conversation about they're not a child until I declare it a child. I just think, well, I don't know of anything else in all of life that we have that way. I don't, you can't go out of the parking lot and look at cars and say, none of those are cars until I declare them a car. It's mm. self-evident. That's a car. Okay. That has four tires. It has a steering wheel. It has an engine. It has seats in it. That's a car. And it may, may look different on that, but we can all at least admit what's obvious to us. We just have to do the same thing to admit what is obvious. That's a child. Yeah. Well, and it's so simple when you, you know, you lay it out like that. It's we're not the ones who are obfuscating language or trying to use euphemisms. We're telling the truth. And my brother just had his first child a month ago. And when he went for the first um, ultrasound, he said, the baby looks like a baby. And I was like, that's because it is. Because it is a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. You know, we're a pro-life family. But for him, he's like, it already looks like a baby, even yeah. so young. And I think... Uh, we have this blessing of living in this time where we've got so much science and technology to help us tell the truth. Um, and that's something, you know, we are going to have the opportunity to do uh, in the courts. The other branch of government we are so focused on, um, you know, we're all paying such close attention to the Texas heartbeat law um, and the backlash against it in the courts. I know you've been tweeting about this. Um, why do you support Texas's law? And, and what do you think other states can do? I know you mentioned Oklahoma so pro-life and, and we've worked with Oklahoma lawmakers on um, legislation in the past. Like what, what should we be doing here as the next steps? So the, the Texas law is an interesting one because it's taken the same issue that multiple states have done. And that is they want to protect the life of a child before they're viable. So <clears throat> brief moment of science for everyone. Just take a deep breath on this. The Supreme Court in 1973, when they ruled on Roe v. Wade, they said that a state can engage in protecting the life of a child in the womb after they're viable. Now, that definition of viable was left wide open and basically to interpretation. 50 years later, 48 years later, we're still in this conversation about what is viability. Now, viability in 1973 and viability this year is very different. We have children 21 weeks development that are born premature that survive outside the womb with a lot of medical care, but survive. That becomes a viable child. So what Texas is saying is, hey, listen, I, I, I want to be able to go not just for 21 weeks at viable. I want to be able to actually go back to when they have a heartbeat and to acknowledge that's a child. Can you at least admit to the world 
that's a child when it has a heartbeat. Now, I look at a child at conception and to say it has different DNA than the mom or the dad, that's something unique about that tissue that's different, even when it doesn't look like a baby yet uh, because it's so small and the cells are developing. That's still a child in full development at that point. Texas looked at it and said, okay, let's at least agree on heartbeat at that point, but did something different that no other state has done before, and that's done a private right of action, as I mentioned before on this conscience protection, given the ability for an individual citizen to be able to sue an abortion provider, not the mom, but the abortion provider and say, you've fulfilled something, you've taken the life of a child, uh, uh, someone that had, a child that had a heartbeat. So uh, that, that's a, a game changer. So what the Supreme Court's trying to be able to determine at this point is, does a, is a private right of action something that the court can engage with? Because Roe mm -hmm. v. Wade dealt with, can the state get involved in that? Now they're dealing with a separate question of, of a private right of action from a different individual. And the Dobbs case that I know we're gonna get to as well in Mississippi is even another case out there. It deals with 15 weeks of development in Mississippi and the Supreme Court will hear that case on December the 1st this year and uh, do full oral arguments uh, December the 1st, and then they'll make their decision behind closed doors and then write opinions. We should get that opinion probably by June of next year. Yes, we're all anxiously awaiting that opinion. Um, one of the ways that uh, members of Congress can weigh in on these cases is by filing amicus or friend of the court briefs and saying, here's our interest. And I know you have been a leader on uh, filing amicus briefs in all of these pro-life cases, including most recently, we filed one for 228 members of Congress. And it was the first time that many members called on the court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, it was something we didn't do in 2019 with June Medical, but, but members felt ready to take that moment. Um, and actually 231 members um, took that position because there are two briefs um, coming from the pro-life side. Um, <laughs> why is this the moment to reconsider Roe and, and why is reconsidering Roe so necessary? So obviously uh, the three of us in this conversation have been ready to get rid of Roe since 1973. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay? Uh, so th th yes. this has been a standard for us. Uh, we thought it was a bad decision from the beginning. It's finding the right court, the right breakdown, and the right case becomes the biggest issue because the Supreme Court doesn't hear issues all the time. They'll hear them in generations. So big mm -hmm. issues like abortion, they'll may take little pieces and talk about you know viability and, and change that they'll make on partial birth or whatever it may be. Uh, but on big issues, they take them in 20 or 30 year segments. So when the case comes, it better be the right case. What's unique about the Mississippi case is they're asking a very specific question. Can our state be involved in protecting the life of a child before that child is viable? Now, everything about Roe v. Wade hangs on that one decision. If a state can mm -hmm. be involved in protecting the life of a child before they're viable, then a state is open to making their own decisions about abortion. What, what people forget is pre-1973, there was abortion in America. Some states, like my state in Oklahoma, said no, it was, it was not legal in my state. Other states, like New York, said yes, that they were going to have abortion. What Roe v. Wade did is the court mandated every state has to allow abortion. They created a new constitutional right to abortion in every state. What this question of Dobbs is going to be is, is that true? Is it really a constitutional right that every mom has the right to be able to take the life of their child? Is that a constitutional right? I don't believe that's a constitutional right. I want to value the life of every single person. And so this case coming up will make that simple decision. So yes, there's a lot of members of Congress that have actually uh, put their name out there and told the, told the court, we can't compel you what to do, 
but let us walk through the arguments of why we believe that we should not have some constitutional right to be able to take the life of a child. Uh, we should instead throw this back to the states where it was and allow each state to be able to determine what that's going to be and how they're going to protect that right and allowing multiple states like mine and like others to be able to step in and say, we value the life of every single child. And then the conversation goes state to state. Yeah, and we're so thankful for partners like you because this is what our team does day in and day out, trying to break down those arguments and using their legal expertise to just find every hole possible um, to cover, you know, any of the reasons why any of these cases throughout history have found a reason to reaffirm Roe. And and I think this really is, it's gr a great chance. It is, um, we have been preparing for months and I think it's just, like you said, the moment, the time, the place, and and the bench that um, really gives us um, a good shot. And, and, and just to be able to have those conversations even with our friends and family and communities about um, just the constitution and, and really the, the rights that it holds and, and just have a conversation about what is really in there. Um, yeah. but, but just as a, um, you know, as a Senator, you, you can't fix this. You have to be the one to just kind of call on the court. Um, maybe going back to just basic civics class, what makes the role of the Supreme court so unique? Why do we need this decision to be, you know, to be made by the court and, and, and you get to have a voice in that, but just, why, why is it important that we that we do have um, all the different branches and, and give them that power to really consider this? Oh, you bet. So here you go, Civics Lesson 101 on it. So <laughs> you got three articles that start out the United States Constitution. Article 1, by the way, the longest of all the different articles, mm -hmm. defines out the responsibilities of the legislative branch, uh, what they can do, what they can't do. Uh, and it does what's called the enumerated powers uh, for Article One for the legislative branch, the House and the Senate. Describes how the House and the Senate will come to be, how their members will be, uh, all the details about it. But their basic responsibility is writing the law for the country. Uh, that's the responsibility for the legislative branch. Article Two, the the White House, the President, uh, the President's responsibility is executing the laws once they've been written. And Article Three, the judges. Uh, their responsibility is interpreting the law. So everything's based around the law. We are a nation of laws. Uh, it's interesting to note in for abortion, Congress has never expanded abortion. Congress pulls abortion back. Uh, state legislatures are constantly pulling abortion back. So as a legislator, I'm constantly fighting to be able to protect the life of children. What bills can we put out there uh, that deal with all the issues on this? The White House, depending on the White House, and I can be a little bit partisan, I guess, in this. Uh, president Trump was the most pro-life uh, pro, uh, uh, president that we've ever had uh, in how active he was in looking around. Our office worked very close with his administration, identifying multiple areas to be able to say, hey, have you thought about this for foreign entities? Have you thought about this in relationship with what we're doing in HHS and other things? And they were always aggressively trying to find a way to be able to protect the life of children on that. President Biden has flipped that. He's taken the same things that President Trump is doing and say, what, what are the most pro-abortion things that we can possibly do to actually increase the number of abortions in America, which has been remarkable. Yeah. The president does have power uh, and can make decisions on how they actually execute the law. And so the president does matter in how all this is done. 
But ultimately, abortion and requiring every state to take on abortion was a decision made by the courts by Article 3 in our Constitution when they define there is a constitutional right to abortion. They found in the Constitution this right to abortion that I look at it and I read the Constitution, I go, I don't see that. So the question that's now coming in front of the courts now is for them to look at old decisions that they made in 1973 and to say, did that court get it right? Can they look at the Constitution with fresh eyes and to find some magical right to be able to take the life of a child? I don't think they will. Quite frankly, it takes four justices to be able to agree to take a case. Every case that goes to the Supreme Court, they don't take. In fact, most cases by far, they don't take. They take only about 80 cases a year. So of those 80 cases a year, they're all fairly significant uh, cases. And they're often cases that have had differences of opinion in what's called circuit courts, the lower Mm -hmm. courts beneath them. And if there's two differences of opinion and it becomes a significant new case, they'll often take a look at it and say, we need to establish what's clear in law. When they took this case, four justices had to agree, we want to take this case. I Just for me personally, I don't think the four of them agree to take this case unless there's a fifth one sitting out there as well uh, that also says we want to reevaluate this whole thing about Roe v. Wade. Otherwise, why would they take it at all? Uh, So I don't know that. It's just my suspicion uh, that there's at least five justices that are ready to go back and reexamine Roe v. Wade and to say, don't think this is actually some secret right to take the life of a child in the Constitution somewhere. I think we need to relook at this decision from 1973. Well, we are sure praying that that you're right, that there is that fifth or sixth justice. We think it should be unanimous. I I do, too. I think it should be nine to say, gosh, why would why would we ever agree to take the life of a child as a constitutional right? But we'll see. I'll I'll take six. I'll take five right now. (laughs) Yeah. Senator Lankford, I know just in general, it's been a wild year in Congress and um, and it's just an interesting culture right now, um, especially um, on this issue. And we've been able to sit in and hear some of the arguments. Um, I got to kind of have my first experience hearing abortion discussed and debated um, in the Senate Judiciary Committee um, hearing this summer. And it was just appalling to me um, how different the worldviews are between people who see abortion differently. And, and just, I am really wondering, even for my own experience and just the way that I carry um, myself and for our listeners, I'm just wondering, how do you practice compassion with your colleagues while holding to these strong convictions about life? Yeah. So it, it is interesting to me in the way that you frame that question. It's a great way to be able to frame it. Uh, there are a lot of things that are issues where we have wide disagreements, not just across parties, but even within parties. We should have different perspective across the country and for different ideas. I can often sit down with a colleague, listen to their point of view and get it. And I may not agree with their point of view, but I I think I can understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that. And here's why I don't agree with it. But I understand where you're coming from. This issue, I just don't get. I I just don't get it. And I've I've sat with different colleagues and tried to listen to their arguments. And I think, yes, yes, that all sounds nice, except there's a baby in the middle of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And and if, if we were having an argument uh, back and forth with a child in a stroller right in between us, I think it would be even more clear uh, to be able to be in the argument to go, wait, uh, we can have all this argument we want, but there's this baby in the stroller right in front of us. What are we going to do with this child? Uh, and a lot of the argument on the other side and the other perspective that's the pro-abortion side of this is children are inconvenient. And, and if they're inconvenient, 
and they're young, we should be able to take their life and to just destroy that child because now's not the right time. When it's the right time, we'll make another one and we'll just have another baby and make another mm-hmm. one. I, 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 I think that's abhorrent because I see the value of every single life. This is not just a baby, just tissue that's there for a while. Uh, this is really a child. And so it is very difficult. So I take a couple of things in. Number one is I assume for a mom having an abortion, this is a very difficult decision because a mom having a, uh, an abortion, no matter who she is, I believe in my gut, she knows that's a baby in the womb and she's making a very, very hard decision. So I always have great compassion for the moms that are in this. I don't scream at them. I don't call them names. I approach them with a sense of compassion to be able to say, I, this was probably the most difficult decision you ever made in your life to be able to take the life of this child because you determined this was not the right time. I'll make another baby another time. It'll be the right time. But I also know that mom is going to sit in the food court at the mall one day and is going to have at some point a child run past her table and is going to go, yeah, that child's six. That's about how old my child would have been if I hadn't have aborted him. And that's going to always be in their mind. They're going to think, you know, it's graduation from high school. If I hadn't aborted that child, they'd be graduating from high school right now. Uh, that, that, that never leaves a mom that has an abortion. They, she can do whatever she can, but in quiet moments, that's going to always be there. So I, I make that first assumption to have great compassion for the moms. The second thing is I don't allow people to be able to get an argument about convenient and inconvenient. There are lots of moments when children are not convenient. I promise you the two-year-old in the restaurant throwing a fit and screaming at the top of their lungs is not convenient at that moment in the restaurant. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I go destroy that child because they're not convenient to me that day. Uh, I, I, I honor and respect life in such a way. And so yeah. I, I take it with compassion for the mom, but also basic acknowledgement. Uh, and, and the other self-evident thing is, we have to start from the beginning point. What's different about this baby that's aborted and this baby that's delivered? You've got two moms, both at 20 months uh, of gestation. One mom is, both of them are walking down the street, unbeknownst to each other, they're both walking down the same street. One is headed to their office to have a baby shower. The other is headed to a Planned Parenthood to be able to take the life of that child. What's different about those two babies? Nothing is different about those two babies. But except the mom acknowledges this one is convenient to me and is the right time. And the other one says it's not convenient. But that child is the same child, is, is the same moment. There's nothing different about that child. So I, I just don't think we have the, the ability or the right to be able to just declare one child convenient and one child not convenient. And so we can just take their life. We don't do that for kindergartners. We certainly shouldn't do that for children in the womb. Absolutely. Well, um, we know you have a lot to be proud of and a lot that you're still working on. And and thank you for your diligence in that. And um, thank you for just being um, an inspiration to us as we continue to work on this issue. Um, remind us where we can follow along with what you're doing um, and what to be looking out for from your office in the coming months. Well, you can always go to langford.senate.gov and that's our website. It's got our phone numbers, it's got our email addresses. It's got, we have an e-newsletter that we send out with different information about what's going on in Congress that we send out every month that people can get information that way on it. It even has an address where if you use like letters and stamps, you can even mail <laughs> things in. That's crazy. Uh, but there are ways to be able to keep involved that we'll be glad to be able to keep people informed. Uh, I encourage folks when they're having a conversation about life, keep the focus on the child. Folks that are pro-abortion always want to keep the focus on the mom. But everywhere where there's that lady, there's 
also a little child that's there involved as well in this conversation. So we want to have respect for her as a mom, but we also want to have respect for that little girl uh, that's in the womb or that little boy as well and to be able to pay attention to both of those. So just in your dialogue, as people are talking to others, be respectful, but be clear. Uh, we speak up for the rights of every single child, not just in the womb, but in their own development and in their, their future. That child is a future leader, is a future participant in this great country that we have, um, but is an individual that is creating the image of God and they have value and worth. And that's not just my religious belief. That's basic science as well, yep. and it's self-evident to people. So keep the focus on the child in the dialogue, and don't be afraid to have respectful dialogue with people that disagree, because we are on the right side of this. And the longer they talk, the more frustrated they become because they realize they've just not considered the child in this mm -hmm. conversation. And once they have to consider that child, they start to awaken and realize maybe this is gonna be different. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for those words. I'm, I know I'm encouraged and we are just um, thankful to have this conversation today and we'll get it to many as, as many as we can. Thank you Running again. Running to go vote, but it's great to be yeah. able to visit with y'all. Yeah, thank Thanks. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, y'all. Today, Katie and I were discussing our shots of gratitude and even though we didn't make it to that while Senator Langford was still on, Katie shared that she is thankful and grateful for the March for Life, and they have just released their new theme for the 2022 March for Life, which is Equality Begins in the Womb. So be sure to stay tuned to that movement and make your plans to head up to D.C. for the March for Life. I know AUL will be making a strong presence there. And today I'm thankful for the ability to um, just have open and free conversation. I'm experiencing that still being on a university campus and um, through this podcast and, and through life, liberty, and law as well. So very thankful for that right and that freedom to learn from each other through open conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review wherever you listen, and tell a friend about us. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, we want to hear about those. So please send us an email at life at AUL.org. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and check out AUL.org for a fresh new website update if you haven't seen that already. I'm Anna Claire Novlet. Until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law and supporting Americans United for Life. Mm -hmm.